Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And it is our desire to hear your voice this morning. We thank you that things that have happened so long ago have been preserved for us to consider today. Help us to hear your voice and to know what it is you're saying to us in the here and now. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Um, I'm going to begin with a word of thanks. And I'm going to thank Margaret. Margaret was looking shocked because of what she'd done to thank you. One thing I like, I like people who are honest. And Margaret's honest. And a few weeks ago at the Bible study, we were looking at a passage in Daniel, and I got a bit carried away. It was the second week we were looking at the same chapter, and it's full of signs and symbols. And I said to Margaret, what do you think? And she was honest enough to say, actually, I'm a bit confused. Because she said, I don't know my Bible as well as you do, and you've lost me somewhere. And actually, it was good, and it was actually really helpful for me to think, yes, sometimes I do that. You read a passage, and you get carried away, and you start making all these wonderful connections but actually, often when you've done that, you've also forgotten what the passage is actually saying. You, you, you've gone off on some, you know, some sort of tangent. It's something, obviously, that I, I, I mentor students at school who want to be math teachers. And the biggest issue many of them have to learn is it's not about how good they are at maths. It's about how much the pupils are able to do and how much the pupils are learning and growing and developing. Because quite often the young teachers want to show off how fantastic they are. And we said, it's not about how fantastic you are. It's about what people are picking up. And usually when you've got your focus wrong, you miss the point. And the reason I'm saying that is this is one of those passages. It would be very easy to read the wrong bits and get carried away. Because in this passage, we're rich with symbols. We've got the burning bush. You've got the stake, the staff that becomes a snake. Again, you've got the leprous hand and you've got the water turned into blood. And you can, we can read in these, what God's trying to say by using these symbols, and actually not hear what God is actually saying to Moses. And I've prepared, you know, it, I, I still want to mention one or two things without getting you too overwhelmed. So like the burning bush, we could actually just sit and meditate on the fact that the angel of the Lord appeared as a flame in a thorn bush. We know from the New Testament it was a thorn bush, because whenever they refer to this, they say a bush of thorns. That God chose to appear in something that itself was a consequence of the curse. That God chose to appear in something that is, to gardeners, useless and a nuisance. It gets in the way. You spend all your time trying to stop the thorns growing. And I know myself, whenever I cut down the thorns, I usually end up with getting them caught in my jumper, caught in my hair. And it is. It's a pain. I'll be honest, I've also tried to use them to keep the cats out, but that doesn't seem to work either. (laughs) But God chose to appear in something that was for most of us, useless and a nuisance. And you could argue that actually a lot of this passage is about that. But we're also preparing for Easter. And this is where you get, oh, and you think of the crown of thorns that Jesus wore. Then you've got the staff that became a snake. And my mind's thinking, oh, didn't two weeks ago we look at Genesis 3 and we had the serpent in the tree. And then you've got Numbers 11, where they hold up the brazen staff with the snake on it, and they all need to look at it to be healed. And then you've got John 3, where Jesus says, until, unless people gaze on me, and until the Son of Man is risen up like the snake in the desert. I'm thinking, wait a minute, oh, there's another story going on here all the way through. And again, you get carried away, and you can, you, we've left Exodus 3 behind, because now we've gone on to something else. I do note that, Jesus, that God wants Moses to, to perform an act of courage. I'm not particularly scared of snakes, but if anyone has said to me, now just grab it by its tail, there's a wee bit of me thinking, 
I'm not even sure I can catch it, let alone grab it. And it's got fangs on the other end. What's interesting is when he does appear before Pharaoh, Pharaoh's magicians, who we know from Judah called Jans and Jambres, I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, turn their staffs into snakes. And it, quite amusingly, the snake that Moses has eats their snakes. And so they're left without any staffs. And then there's the leprosy on the hand that Moses puts in and it comes out and all of a sudden he's leprous. And then he puts in and it's healed again. And of course, being Christians, how often did we used to hear about leprosy is like a sin or sin is like leprosy. And, and if we're looking at Leviticus, we could have a whole sermon there as well. What is interesting, and we'll come to it later, is that God was able to make Moses sick as much as he was able to make him better. And that's a conundrum. It's an, a curious one to think about. And then we have the turning the water into blood. Now again, Pharaoh's, um, and I don't want to preempt next week too much on, but again, Pharaoh's magicians were able to do this. What they couldn't do was turn the blood back into water. Only God was able to do that. But we could get carried away looking at all these symbols and think, what's God trying to say to me through these symbols? And actually miss that, well, actually, let's just read what God is saying. Because he is speaking. The other thing I sometimes remember when I look at these passages, they're so familiar, we sometimes forget the shock and the horror. But if I sat down with Sarah and Peter, which I have done, and we watched The Prince of Egypt, I don't know if you've seen the cartoon, they are full of really difficult questions. The hardest one being, why would God do that? And there's a bit of you that sometimes thinks, I can come up with some justification, but I'm getting a bit... How can you explain to a six-year-old and an eight-year-old why God did what he did? And it can be quite hard. I think the answer to that question, there's a little bit of it in here, and we'll come to that too. But before we race away, looking at all these other bits, let's just deal with what the text actually says. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to take a step back a minute. And we're going to watch a video in just a second. Because God is asking Moses, who at the moment is in the back of beyond, he's in his 80s, he's a shepherd, he's married out of the Israelites, and we'll talk about that later as well. And God said to him, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Maybe not in the same words that Louis Armstrong used, but that kind of thing. In the clip we're about to see, it's from West Wing, and it's, it came straight to mind. They have a new scriptwriter, a new speechwriter, who's working for the president. And they want to check that he actually is confident enough to work with the president. So what they've done is the president has made a bad suggestion in one of his speeches. He hasn't actually done it, but he sent it to him to, you know, here's, here's my thoughts. They want to know if he's got the confidence to tell the president he's wrong. Now, the president knows he's wrong. He's done it on purpose. And the person he's working with has also made sure he's not around, so he's the one that has to do it. But this is what happens. Hello. Good afternoon. I'm Will Bailey. Oh, it's good to meet you. Charlie Young. Hi. The president's going to see you in just a minute. Oh, no, no. I'm meeting Toby Ziegler here. Yeah, Toby's not coming. He called. Leo needs him on the hill. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, this should be rescheduled for a time when that's not happening. I'll just go back to my office. Toby here yet? No, sir, but this is Will Bailey. So, finally we meet. Hello. Want to come in? Oh, no, no, uh, no, no, no. Okay. Well, I sent some notes on the congressional section. Did you? Isn't that why you're here? Actually, I was just meeting Toby Ziegler. To see me? Yes. I thought it was about the notes on the congressional section. I'm pretty sure it is. Okay. Would you like to come back with Toby? I think so, sir, yes. Well, thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Mr. Justice. Mr. Bartlett. Mr. President, actually. Oh, my God. You know what? 
I've seen worse. Really? Well, no. I, I quite like that because suddenly it just reminds us of the reality. I mean, most of us have enough trouble complaining when we're not happy with our food in a restaurant. Can you imagine going to... You've got those that are overconfident and just want to complain. But he's being asked to go to Pharaoh. This is not a small task. This is an enormous task. It's an enormous ask of anyone to go into the palace and speak to Pharaoh. I'm going to be honest. There'd be part of me thinking, I'm not sure you're asking the right person. But that's what we want to consider is why did God ask Moses, of all people. See, Moses was not a speechwriter for Pharaoh. He wasn't in the palace. Now, this is a curious thing. He had been in the palace when he was younger. Up until about the ages of 40, if you remember the story, he'd been, as a baby, there was a Pharaoh rose up who knew nothing of Joseph, and historically, and it's, it's hidden away in the text as well, this Pharaoh was not Egyptian. So he had no reason to think anything about the story of Joseph. And he had just seen that there was this large group of people who were not Egyptians, and they were a threat to him. So he wanted rid of them. So he enslaved them, and he wanted the, the boys particularly killed, because girls you can marry off, but boys need to be a bit harder with. And so Moses is floated down the Nile in a basket, in an ark, if you want to think of it that way, and he's found by one of Pharaoh's daughters. And then he's raised by his own mum, I remember missing that before, that he's actually brought up by his own mum, and he still has a connection with his brother and sister. But for 40 years, he has all the privileges of being a prince in Egypt. But God does not appear to him at this point. Doesn't, God doesn't say to him, oh, whilst you're here, I want you to go and have a word with Pharaoh. He doesn't do any of that. But one day when he's out for a walk, and he's in his 40s, he knows he's a Hebrew, and he sees the heat, how badly they've been treated, and he takes it up with an Egyptian guard and fights him so hard, aggressively and violently, he actually kills the guard. And he buries him in the sand because he realizes he maybe shouldn't have done that. And he's spotted doing it by the Hebrew slaves. Now, whilst you'd think they'd be all on his side, thinking, oh, great, here's someone fighting for us, actually, when he finds two Hebrews fighting, he says, oh, don't do that, you're meant to be brothers. And they say, what are you going to do? You're going to kill one of us too? At which point he realizes that he's not safe. And Pharaoh hears about it and wants to kill him. So then he runs away. And for the next 40 years, he lives as a shepherd in the desert near Mount Sinai. He marries a woman whose, whose father is a priest, a Midianite priest, not an Israeli priest, not a, a priest of Jehovah. We'll find out later when he has children, he doesn't get them circumcised. He spends 40 years hiding. And that's when God decides... Now's your time, Moses. Now you're in the right place for me to use you. Which is bizarre. Because all that time he was in the palace, he would have had access to Pharaoh or Pharaoh's men or Pharaoh's governors or whoever. But God chooses now. Now you may may not remember that at the end of Genesis, one of the Joseph says to his dad when he comes down, Tell Pharaoh you're a shepherd, because they don't like shepherds. Sheep are filthy, sheep sheep are dirty. So not only is Moses no longer being faithful to God, he's no longer living amongst his own people, he's no longer being brave, he's actually hiding out coward, he's got to an age and actually he's becoming quite frail. So it's no surprise that his first question when God says, we're going to do this, he says, wait a minute, who am I that you're asking me? I do like it. I, must admit, I, I almost heard ben, Billy Collin in my head. The Bible has, I always think, is a wonderful understatement sometimes. 
Because there is Moses, and it literally just says he's in the back and beyond. He's on the backside of a hill. Now, I never know what the backside of a hill is, but it's that phrasing. It's just emphasizing he's in the middle of nowhere. But it's the way he's walking along, and it just says that phrase, oh, there is a bush on fire. Let's go and have a look. I've got a funny feeling his reaction might have been a bit better than that. But as we said, the flame did not consume the bush. And we could also, before I disappear into talking about Pentecost, I always love that, that this is God appearing as a flame, something that gives us warmth and heat, something that purifies as well, but it's not consuming, it's not doing any harm, it's not doing any damage, because God is self-sufficient, he doesn't require fuel to live. And there's a wee, there's just a wee bit here, and I'd never thought how intimate this was, was Moses comes near and says, stop. Take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Take your sandals off. And I always think at that point, I get the taking your sandals off because they're covered with sand. I remember getting to that stage and eventually my mum bought a nice new carpet for the house and she wouldn't even let me in the door to take my shoes off. I had to take my shoes off in the garden or at the back step because there was no way my shoes were going anywhere near this nice new carpet. However, I did have to then make sure I still had socks on because she wasn't wanting bare feet on her carpet either. And that's the thing. He's walking on holy ground with bare feet. God hasn't asked him to put anything else on. He hasn't asked him to cover himself. He hasn't asked him to do anything. I think, how intimate is that? And maybe it's because Moses trained to be a midwife. All I can think is that skin-on-skin thing. There's actually that physical contact between, direct contact between Moses and the holy ground. Of course, once Moses realizes it's God, he hides his face. And I'm going to be honest, I think that was the right response. It's, oh, no. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want, he, he, he's scared of God. Later on, you start to wonder if he's more scared of Pharaoh than he is of God because he's quite happy to argue with God. He's not too chuffed about going to speak to Pharaoh. So Moses says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. Because Moses said, who am I? Who am I, this person hiding away? And he's going to come up with more objections. But before he comes up with more objections, he sort of turns back to God and says, and who are you? When you send me, who am I meant to tell people you are? What's your name? I don't think he's been quite challenging. But this is the old question. What is the name of God? Quite often to know someone's name is to sort of have some power about them. But... God says, I am. This is where God introduces himself as Jehovah or Yahweh, both of which are translations of what we're not sure God actually said. Because to the Israelites, to use the name of God, well, you shouldn't do it. It was too holy, it was too pure to say it. So they never wrote it down either, and they messed out some of the words. So we don't know if it was Jehovah or if it was Yahweh, and both are sort of correct. But God says, I am who I am. I am the God of the past, the present, and the future. I am, not I was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we, of course, learn in the New Testament that's relevant because God is the God of the living, not the dead. They may longer physically be with us, but they are still living. But I am who I am in the here and now and in this present, and I am, not I will be, but I am the God of the future. I am who I am, not who you want me to be. I am everything you need. I am. Jesus uses it directly when he refers to himself in John when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And you'll think that's a bit of bad grammar. 
But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Because at that point, so do the Pharisees, because they realize he's just called himself God. That's why sometimes when people read the Bible, they say, Jesus never said he was God. Oh, he did. He just said it in a way that sometimes we wouldn't recognize. But I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the gate. When Jesus said, I am, he knew exactly what he was doing. I am the God who appeared to Moses in the desert. But he says to him, he says, go and tell them. Now, this is the thing. God is very honest with Moses. And he says, when you go to see my people, they will listen to you. He tells them directly, they will listen to you. Later on, he says, when you go and see Pharaoh, he won't listen to you. But don't worry, I'm going to come in power and authority and do all the things I need to do. But he says to Moses directly, they will listen to you. But Moses is not convinced. He wants some more evidence. One of the things that God does say, and I realize I've maybe said that out of place, I said earlier on about the question about why would God do what he's going to do? Why would he be so strong with Pharaoh? Sometimes we forget what Pharaoh was doing to his people. And verses 7 or 8 are key to all of this. God has been moved. He says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up. God knows their past, their present, and he's promising them a future. God wasn't moved by anger at Pharaoh. He wasn't moved because he didn't like Pharaoh. He was moved out of compassion for his people. He was moved because of the torture they were going through because of the situations they were living in, because of, well, the horrendous lives that they were having to live. But you can kind of get why Moses is thinking, but why do you need me? Surely you could do this yourself. All God needed Moses to be was a voice. He just needed him to go and speak to Pharaoh. I need you to speak the words I give you. The people, my people, will listen to you. But Pharaoh won't. Pharaoh's going to need me to take some action. He's going to need me to act. He's going to need me to do some things to convince him to let the people go. And I'll be honest, it's one of those moments, and you do struggle with it because we have a lovely image of God. God is love. God is peace. God brings unity. God brings reconciliation. God You know, all the wonderful things that we as Christians seek to live out in our day-to-day lives. But God's been quite clear to Moses, is actually the way Pharaoh's behaving. I'm going to have to come in power and might. And he doesn't use the word judgment, but it's almost judgment. However, notice the wee caveat. He does make the Egyptians look favorably upon the Israelites. Now, I'm going to pause there because I don't want to get too far ahead. But Moses keeps going. He said, you can't use me. I'm the wrong person. I'm too old. And then he says, and I can't speak. You want someone to be your voice. I'm not the person. I can't speak. You know? 
not want to sound rude, but it's almost like when you say, um, it's like the old one about, I want someone to drive me there. Yes, but I'm not going to ask for a blind taxi driver. Moses is, this is why God's, what I'm about to quote here is, seems a bit strange. Because God turns to him, and you can see he's starting to sense, look, you come up with objection after objection after objection, I'm doing everything I can to reassure you. And then God says one of what I find one of the most difficult passages. It says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I struggle with it, and I remember people arguing, saying, nowhere, nowhere does it say that God makes people blind. And I'm thinking, but it does say God makes people blind. It says that God makes people mute. And it's one of those passages that should cause us to pause and stop and think before we race ahead. We worship a God who is absolutely sovereign. He gives abilities to those he desires to give abilities to, but he can also withhold them. Does this mean God has made people blind? Does this mean God has made people mute? I don't know about that, but I do know that for some people who suffer from disabilities, this is actually reassuring because it's saying two things. One, it's saying you're not a mistake. It's saying that you are still part of God's plan. It's saying that God has not forgotten about you. He does know about you. And I often think when people are suffering from a lifelong disability, their faith in God is greater than mine because they have faith in a God who can heal them and yet hasn't. Whereas I thankfully have not had to suffer from any physical impairment. So I can think about these questions but don't have to live with the consequences. But he's also answering Moses quite clearly. And this is the other part. It doesn't matter if you are physically unable to do some things. I can still use you. I can even use your speech even though you tell me your speech isn't good enough. He's turning to Moses and said, don't tell me that you are physically unable to do something. Because I can physically make you able to do it. Now he then says, here's Aaron, your brother. He's going to talk on your behalf. I still need you to be the one that goes and speaks. See, I'm going, to, I'm going to be careful. I've been accused in the past of sometimes being a bit pointed in a sermon. Because people say, were you picking on me? Were you picking on me? And I think, no, I wasn't picking on anyone. But we do have deacons' elections coming up. Let's think of the excuses I've heard over the years about why people aren't deacons. I'm not good enough. Uh, no, my speech isn't good enough. I'm too old. I'm too young. Um, oh, my faith isn't great. Let's think about Moses for a minute. Oh, and, and a criminal record, by the way. You know, he's got a criminal record. He didn't get his children circumcised. They're not believers. We'll find that out later on. He's hiding away. He's doing all the things that makes him not a candidate. And when face to face with God, he doesn't believe him. We miss that in this passage. He has questioned everything God has said. His faith at this moment in time is not one of a hero of faith. He's not the person we talk about in Hebrews who the Lord used mightily. At this moment in time, he's a coward. He's carrying the burden of previous sins. He's passed his physical best. His mental agility is suffering. And he no longer has a strong faith. 
In fact, he has no confidence at all. And that no confidence in himself means he has no confidence in God. Not yet. I think the reason God didn't choose Moses when he was in the palace is because at that point Moses believed he was strong enough, big enough, and hard enough to take him on. God isn't looking for people that are perfect, full of confidence, have all the answers. Because actually we don't. Because as soon as you think you're big enough, strong enough, confident enough, able enough, and my faith is mighty, I can move mountains, all you're going to do is in that kind of brashness, that kind of I know everything, is lead people into destruction. And or accident and mistake after mistake after mistake. God uses Moses because through his weakness, our God will be seen to be strong. God can use every single one of us here. Why? Because we're his. Not because of who we are. Moses began by saying, who am I? But actually, the real focus of this passage is, who is God? And we gather here on a Sunday morning because, to use the same phrasing as to why he came down, because he's seen our affliction. He's heard our cry. He knows our suffering and he knows our weaknesses. But he came down to deliver us so that he may raise us up and give us a future with a new heaven and a new earth. If you are aware of your weaknesses, you're in a good place for God to use you. If you honestly believe you have no weaknesses, then I think God might struggle to use you because you'll act in your own confidence. Maybe something to think about. But let's finish with that gospel message that's in here. God has seen our affliction. He's heard our cry. He knows our suffering and he has come down to deliver us so that he will bring us up to a land, a new heaven and a new earth. We're not asked to have faith in ourselves. We're asked to have faith in him.